What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today, we have back in the studio for her second appearance on our show is Mrs. Nareel Cook. Hi, I'm glad to be back. A little bit more relaxed the second time around, but still nervous, so be kind. Yeah, we will. Well, I will. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So, you joined us quite a while ago. It was one of our earliest episodes. About midway through. Yeah. Yeah, it was about midway through. And we talked about raw feeding and nutrition in dogs, and we established your credentials. So, if you don't know who Narelle is, go back, check that out, and we won't bother proving that she knows what she's talking about again, because we've been through all that. From that episode, there are a lot of questions, right? Mm. Um, And questions specific to people's dogs in particular. And I think it came up with lots of people wanted to talk about allergies. So I think that's what we're going to talk about today, right? Just as an interesting topic, Narelle's been contacted privately quite a lot by people asking her about their dogs in relation to how to feed the dogs better, how to look after their dogs better. Which is great. Which is great. Mm. It's great that she's been getting that traffic and people are recognizing that she has the ability to help them out in certain criteria. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And it's good because there's a lot that can be done naturopathically and nutritionally to support our dogs. So one thing to follow up on the last time we spoke was you were phasing out kibble and bringing in raw. And I think you've done a little bit more of that in the process, right? Like your dogs are closer to a totally raw than they were when we were speaking last time. A little bit closer. I'm still waiting to buy a freezer so I can go more raw Mm -hmm. and store it. Haven't got around to doing that yet. What I have done in the interim is, so they're still getting maybe 50% raw buff mm-hmm. patties. And instead of the kibble, I'm trying to pull back on that. And I've added in the, the Canine Naturals freeze-dried food. Okay. So it's probably the closest you can get to raw food without being raw. So it's just got to add water and rehydrate and you still, it's not heat treated. It's still got a high nutrient content. There's a lot of good benefits to the freeze-dried food. Mm-hmm. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to move away from it. But for now, that's what I'm doing. I've certainly noticed with Randy, because I, you know, my only interaction with your dog is when he's biting me and he's <laughs> a lot more powerful. He is. He looks good. He's thicker, more muscular, and he's more powerful and energetic in his bites. Yeah. Just for me, I'm finding that I've noticed already that the dogs are showing a significant improvement in their energy levels. Mm-hmm. Like even Opie, who's our little French bulldog, I often refer to him as Eggy, if anyone's on my Facebook mm-hmm. Even he's got a lot more energy, he's much more active, which sometimes is painful. Uh, <laughs> however, it, look, it's great. But, you know, I've certainly noticed that the dogs, Ladybugs, she's manic. She's manic. She's stacking on muscle. Mm-hmm. If you actually look at her for a French bulldog, she's just, she's just rippling with muscle. And even Opie is. He actually looks fantastic. All the dogs do. Katana looks good. Randy looks good. Opie looks good. And Ladybug looks good, which is 
all our dogs. Mm-hmm. So the benefits of it appear to be exhibited physically. Yeah. Well, you certainly, I mean, I can tell by looking at Randy yeah. and exactly as I say, like all my interactions with him are in his highest level of arousal yep. and he's got more power for sure. That's really good to hear because he's been the last one to be transitioned onto something close to a raw mm-hmm. diet. He's always been 100% kibble just because he's a big dog and it was expensive. So mm-hmm. the little dogs got priority. So I'm really happy to hear that feedback. And I've added in a few supplements for him, antioxidants, some oils. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, good. Yeah. Well, it's there. I can feel it in my legs when he bites. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So today, what is it that we're going to talk about? I think what we'll do is we'll start off a little bit about the cancer series. A while back, we were discussing that online, the Balance Symposium, that mm-hmm. conversation opened up. Uh, since then, Narelle and I, when we were in Fiji, we actually watched it. Mm-hmm. So we spent time sitting down. I watched it first and then Narelle watched it and we spent a little time. Where did you watch it? What's it on? You can download it. Right. It's a paid prescription. Right. I think if you go to either Rodney Habib's website or Karen Becker's website, you can actually find that material there. Okay. Well worth it. I highly recommend it. I think it's definitely one of the better pieces of material that I've read or watched and listened to for quite some time. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of their work anyway. Mm -hmm. I think the great thing about Karen Becker, some people have accused her of witch doctory, which tends to happen in more natural therapies or raw feeding or anything like that. As soon as you go off the mainstream, Mm -hmm. you're accused of being a heretic or a witch doctor. Well, I've been someone that you've interviewed said I do voodoo. Who's that, Bart? (laughs) (laughs) I think Bart loves his voodoo voodoo. Yeah. Yeah, that's the common thing that, is expressed by people, particularly by people who don't know, haven't experienced and don't spend much time in that sort of realm. I can understand people's reservations to it, mm-hmm. especially when people are looking for that quick fix. They're looking for the magic bullet, yeah. you know, something that works immediately. And having a natural lifestyle, it doesn't mean that you have to become a hippie and that you have to start drinking dandelions in boiling water or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Dandelions in boiling water are really good for you. I know they are, but it doesn't mean that you have to. No. It's not a major shift in lifestyle. And this is primarily what the cancer series was saying is it's not a it's not a big shift in a lifestyle. What it is, it's a, it's a shift in the way that you take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. So but what's also happening is people always want that quick fix and that's what they've been doing, you know, for so long now. But people are gaining an awareness that the quick fix just isn't hitting the mark. So that's why people are now more open to the more natural side of things. Um, and alternative approaches because it's just not working. What's been happening and what people have been doing just isn't sustainable and it's not. Yeah, it's a Band-Aid for a, mm. a, when we should be addressing the wound itself or, or preventing getting the mm. wound. Well, I remember a while back I was expressing to people that I had a dislike for fluoride in water. Mm-hmm. And I'd done a little research on it. I looked it up, especially when the internet sort of started to take off and search engines started to happen. Mm-hmm. Like it's a lot of conspiracy things, but I said to people, I'm not really comfortable with fluoridation in water. Mm-hmm. And people accused me back then of, they said, oh, where's your little aluminium hat? And, you know, you... Did you, you have one? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I've still got it somewhere. Yeah. The reality is, if you bother to educate yourself a little bit, like if you actually do a little reading, a little investigatory work, you actually come up with some interesting facts. Now, I know there's a lot of bullshit out there. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. And I've subscribed to some people's bullshit before. However, in a reality, why are we drinking fluoride? And they're saying it's for the benefit of teeth. Now, all of a sudden, research is coming out where they're saying that fluoride is actually listed as a neurotoxin. Right. 
claims that 20 years ago people said was absolute quackery, they're now coming forward and saying, well, it is actually toxic to you. In, mm-hmm. in, in doses. In doses. That but how much are we dosing? We just don't know. Yeah. And that's okay. the thing is when you're having it as an additive to foods and toothpaste and then water and so forth, mm. it's like Norell and I discuss about things. It's what's the difference between the cure and the poison? It's mm. in the dose. That's right. But we just don't know how much we're drinking, how much we're actually taking in. And look, to be honest, I have high sensitivity to tap water. People have said to me before and tried to call me on that bullshit before and said, you know, you're talking shit. But if you give me a nice glass of filtered water and you can put it in a line of 20, I'll find the tap water by smelling it. I can, it smells like a, swim, like a dirty swimming pool. Mm-hmm. That's what tap water smells like. But you look at the amount of rust, you look at the amount of bacteria that's in it. And this is not me. This is actually laboratories coming forward as well with that information mm. saying there is so much shit in the water that we're drinking that we're taking a gamble. Hmm. And just bringing that back to dogs too, people often don't think about, and we'll talk a lot about nutrition and diet today, but people don't think about the water that they're giving their dogs. And I'm always buying new water buckets for our dogs because they rust so quickly Hmm. and it just, you know, that's not a good... Well, it leaches into the water. Yeah, but fluoride and chloride in the water messes with your gut bacteria, messes with your thyroid gland in dogs. And that can just set up a whole cascade of health events as well. Mm. I feel like I have to say, though, like I'm, I'm on board with you. I think that, you know, get involved in the best health that you can. The only thing that I sort of raise an eyebrow at is when people want to talk about, oh, I can't have fluoride in the water. The government are trying to kill us and they're smashing burgers. And they're like, mm. oh, no, I, I can only drink the th- – that's the thing. That's where I'm hanging my hat and that's um, – I don't drink fluoride, but I'll, I, I take drugs and I, I – you know, <laughs> who knows who knows where the fuck they're being made and, yeah. and I just eat cheesels and – but, oh, don't give me your government conspiracy water. That's when I'm like, uh-huh, cool, mm. fuck Hey, off. let me just cut to the chase here. <laughs> I'm not a poster child for Narelle's campaign. So, I mean, look, I eat excessive amounts of food. I, you know, because it's delicious. Because it's delicious. So, I like eating large quantities of food, if I'm being honest. The wrong types of food, like Narelle will say to me, you shouldn't be eating this, you shouldn't be eating that. And I'll binge eat or I'll sneak eat things and stuff like that. I'm a stress eater. Mm -hmm. So, that's how I cope with stress. I take comfort in food. So, Narelle says to me, this is on you if you go and do this. If you're bitching about your weight and you're finding it difficult to shrug it, it's on you because you're eating all the foods that I'm telling you not to. You're eating in the times where I'm telling you not to. Mm. So she's right. It is. It's on me. But I don't tell you don't eat it. I just say if you eat it, these are the consequences of doing so. And look, to put it out there, naturopaths and nutritionists, we're not perfect. You know, we... There's quackery in every, every field. And that's the thing is... Even for us as dog trainers, like in the dog training industry, there's brilliant dog trainers out there. They're absolutely sensational. The, the advice they give, the quality of the service they give their clients, the results they provide, it's just second to none. And then again, you've got these fucking morons that just completely bugger it for everybody by giving this absolutely woeful advice. And it's the same thing with the natural medicine fraternity so to speak because i've seen things that you've produced i've seen things that your colleagues have produced i've seen things that online that you and i've read and shared between ourselves and it's great advice and yet i sent i think i sent you an article today where mm, uh, i didn't read it yet where a natural practitioner subscribed curing a child's rage issue with rabid dog saliva what yeah <laughs> she gave rabies in- Ra- yeah the saliva of a rabid dog to a child to cure their 
So now that's voodoo. Well, look, mm. there, there are people in like in all industries and in all walks of life, and we know it. There's been people like that in the army. There's been people like that in mechanics. There's people who are just shit quality people have no. They don't even educate themselves on anything. They just have a delusion of grandeur about anything and they provide poor information. Mm. So they haven't studied anything. They just they come up with an idea, think this sounds good, and they go ahead and practice it. And it's just, I mean, for in 30 years of, I've been involved in training dogs, I have seen people come and go in this industry that really should be lined up against a wall and shot. Mm. They've done nothing but harm the industry with the information they've given. And Narelle and her colleagues endure that same sort of bullshit in theirs. Yeah, I think every industry has its heroes and villains. Of course they do. And and I think where you fit on that is a sliding scale as well. I, I, um, I talk about, you know, sometimes I have a terrible day at work. Sometimes yep. I'm just my head's not in it and I just have a shit session yep. and maybe I set the dog back and usually no one knows. Mm. But mm-hmm. if you're a surgeon, a heart surgeon, and you have a terrible day at work and someone dies on the table, well, everybody realizes, right? But the difference is it's just you had a shitty day at work and I have shitty days at work as well and people give bad advice, not thinking clearly, thinking like, oh, you know, like their mind's elsewhere. And, you know, a lot of the time when I'm doing my job, my mind's elsewhere and no one can tell. Mm. But if you're giving advice and you're thinking about the fucking rabid dog down the street, and next <laughs> thing you've accidentally given a kid rabies. What I find ironic is, you know, you do get certain people in the health industry that are so fanatical, you know, like the fluoride conspiracy, mm. and that consumes them and they're so stressed about it. And it's just crazy because, there's, you know, stress is going to do more damage to their body and their health mm. than if they just relaxed a little bit and had moderation and enjoyed a few things that perhaps aren't perfect for us. But Mm -hmm. again, it comes back to dose and quantity and, and mindset and it all affects, it's all, it's all part of it. So yeah, people who are just so anxious and stressed about avoiding a certain food or types of food, it's just counterproductive. Mm. Well, let's get back. Let's go back to the cancer Look, that was a good little rant, but the reality is we need to talk about, we want to talk about the cancer series because I was really fascinated with just the discussions we had on TBS, which is the Balance Symposium. And in general, I've spoken to people. I'm hopefully, if we go over to the IACP this year, which I have all intentions to do so, I'm going to catch up with Karen Becker. I've mm-hmm. caught, I've spoken to her a few times online. You're close personal friends yeah, now. Yeah, she's uh, yeah, close personal friends now. So <laughs> we're going to hopefully catch up and just have a chat. I admire the lady. It's paid off for her, but she's basically a whistleblower in the industry. Mm-hmm. So she's called people on their bullshit and just said, all right, enough's enough. She was an SPCA veterinarian Mm -hmm. and she just got sick of it. She just saw... Too much bullshit. Well, I think that she just felt that what she was doing wasn't benefiting animals like they should be. Yep. And I think uh, a a lot of reasons for change, this is even why people investigate veganism and so forth, is that they just have enough bullshit um, experiences that they just think, oh, I'm sort of adding to the problem of not identifying my footprint here Mm -hmm. and i'm not a vegan i eat meat but i can understand why some people get so upset when it when they see the way people behave getting back to the cancer series again all right so narelle you and i talked about a lot when we were away we had some discussions on it we've been a little bit backwards and forwards talk to me about cancer in dogs what's most interesting that came out of the series is and one of the points that they continue to drive home is all the current cancer treatments, like mainstream, it's just it's all about the tumour. It's about getting rid of the tumour out of the body and that's it. It doesn't really consider the health of the whole body or the person or their quality of life or long-term, you know, what's causing it, what was triggering it. And everyone's like, well, it's genetics. If you're genetically susceptible, there's nothing you can do about it. 
but science is starting to show that the genetic component to cancer is actually really small and it might be you know close to 10% is genetics and the rest of it is our environment and what we do during our life that triggers cancer. So the series was all about treating the underlying cause of cancer. So the whole focus was on diet, environment and cellular health because that's where it starts. That's where things go wrong and that's what we need to address. Like what are we doing to damage ourselves and our mitochondria that's then triggering cancer to grow in the body. What's a mitochondria for people who don't know what that is? That's my line. I was about to say that. Oh, is that your line? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Let, let, uh, let's reverse back in time. What's a mitochondria? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Both of you. Mitochondria, they're these little powerhouses that are in nearly every cell in our body. So they take the oxygen that we breathe and the food that we eat and they turn it into energy. So the more the body parts that need more energy so the brain, the muscles, the heart have more mitochondria per cell. And I'm talking thousands. So, you know, our cells are tiny already. So you can imagine how small mitochondria mm -hmm. are to have thousands of them in a cell. But their whole job is to generate energy. They're like little batteries. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a really simple way <laughs> to put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's about my extended knowledge on the mitochondria. But, you know, you need healthy mitochondria to have healthy cells and then healthy cells give you healthy tissues and healthy tissues give you healthy organs. Healthy organs affect how we feel day to day and make us feel good. So it all starts if we don't have enough energy being produced from the mitochondria. They're saying research shows that most chronic degenerative diseases can be traced back to poor mitochondrial health. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's following the river back to the source, right? And understanding exactly that at its smallest part where your health is affected. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I did like about the cancer series, which Rodney was explaining, was even though we've blamed cancer as being a, a genetic component, he actually talks about the inheritability of weakened genetics because mm. what tends to happen is, let's say, for example, our grandparents start eating a bad diet, leading a very stressful life, and basically there's a, a catalyst of things that cascade into cellular issues. Then when they, like, let's say, for example, your grandfather meets and marries your grandmother, they've been through World War II, they've been exposed to chemicals, they've been exposed to toxins, they've been exposed to stress, they've been exposed to poor eating, dietary issues and so forth, their genetics are already compromised. Mm -hmm. So the combination of those two people and what they produce already produces compromised genetics mm -hmm. because they've already had a weakened genetics from there. So does that include, because you said that, you know, genetics accounts for less than 10% or around 10% of cancer. So that's the 10% that you're talking about? Rodney's explanation, and I don't know if I'm doing this justice, Narelle, so you can leap in at any time, but Rodney's explanation was on the DNA chain, like the strand, everything starts to it starts to compromise the helix, mm -hmm. okay? So it starts to hit at it, like starts to smash links in it, basically. So the food you eat, it'll, it'll attack the double helix. The foods and the al like alcohol, the environment you're exposed to, all those things, they start having a chain effect on how the DNA strand is compromised mm -hmm. or constructed. So it is compromised after a period of time. Therefore, when you look at it at the end of the day, it's like the double helix looks like a ladder. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, it looks like a, a ladder with links kicked out of it. Mm -hmm. So you start looking at it and think, well, how am I going to climb that ladder? It's supposed to have 20 links in it. It's got eight that are functional mm -hmm. and they're sporadically all over the place. So now you've got a compromised DNA strain. So you are not as genetically sound as what you're born. 
right. basically because of the choices of your environment product. Am I right here or am I missing the point? At a basic level, that's fine. So explain it as a technical level. <laughs> Oncology is not my specialty. I'll just put that out there. So this is not my area of expertise. But everything you said was accurate. But the way punches holes, like you said all the right things, you know, it's the food we eat, it's the stress, it's the environment, it's the chemicals. But the way they punch those holes is through the generation of free radicals in the body. Mm -hmm. So it's the free radicals. And free radicals are... What's a free radical? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you asked. So free radicals, they're produced by the mitochondria. So they play an essential role in immune health. They help to clean up infection in an acute situation. It's when they become out of balance and chronic that it leads to oxidative stress. But going back to what a free radical is... First, they're unstable. So they're a molecule that's got one electron and it needs a mate. So electrons need to be paired. So this free radical will go off to other atoms and try and steal an electron from them. Mm -hmm. And then you get this domino effect of unstable molecules in the body. And that's very damaging. So it's like punching holes in your cellular membranes, in your DNA, which then triggers... The missing rungs on the ladder. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Yeah, you guys are quick. That's good. We're getting it. Mm. So it's that imbalance between, like I said, free radical generation is a natural part of our metabolism. It's like a byproduct because any power plant is going to have a waste byproduct coming off. You know, when you're generating energy, there's got to be sort of a waste. And that's what free radicals are. But they're kept in check by antioxidants. Mm-hmm. And if the body's under stress from poor diet, from alcohol, from chemicals, it becomes out of balance. And there's too many free radicals and then yeah it just ruins you from the inside out right and so to relate this i mean to dogs in that we're talking genetics and epigenetics and that you control the the damage to your self in your cells dna blah 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 via your diet and as you said stress and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and at a mating to, to use the technical term if we're talking people that is mating. <laughs> you pass on the version of yourself that you are at that time, right? So if you're a, a, a relatively unhealthy person and or if the dog is unhealthy and a mating occurs, the offspring are a makeup of that relatively unhealthy mating. But if the sire or the mother is more healthy, then the offspring will be more healthy or have a better chance at being healthy. Is that? That's completely true. And in my clinic, when we're talking humans, you know, you need a good three to six months of preconception mm-hmm. work to get the cells to that optimal health and to maximize to have a healthy child. But when we're looking at dogs, there's studies out of Sweden that show mothers fed a 100% commercial diet, their offspring are more than are twice as likely to have allergies right. than bitches that are fed a raw diet or a mm-hmm. non-commercial yeah. diet. I just am picturing it in working dog circles where You'd imagine a dog completes a particularly arduous test of some kind and then everyone goes, wow, he's amazing and they want to start from that dog and perhaps that's a bad time to do it because he's exhausted, he's fatigued, he's been through an arduous, stressful thing. Maybe to give it a few months to let him recover before you would do the mating. Is that worthwhile or am I going down the wrong path? No, that's um, a really good point and it depends how the dog's been supported during that arduous time. So. Mm. If he's getting adequate zinc and selenium and vitamin C and the antioxidants to support sperm health and, you know, reproductive health generally, and the female's being supported in a similar way, then 
that would be fine to mate. Right. So, yeah. so then maybe I'm thinking, maybe if you've got a dog who was once a fantastic working dog and he's retired and he's gotten fat and lazy and slow and hasn't been keeping up and you, you're mating him on the stories of the past, you may not get as good a, he may not be as good a producer now as he was in his prime. Would that yeah, also that would, be correct? Yeah. Well, um, I suppose the blueprint's compromised at that point in time. Mm. So you're just not getting the best version of yourself to be replicated through your DNA. Yeah. So, I mean, I, like, I guess. Is that right? Or Yeah, that's right. And But even if you're getting a good version of the dog, you can have the best genetics passed on. But if the person, you know, buying the puppy doesn't do the right thing. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. It's, you know, no point anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, it's compromised. Yeah. But I'm just sort of thinking out loud of, you know, the best starting point possible. Whether it's dogs or humans, I think supporting with key nutrients, like if for breeding, mm-hmm. It's just fundamental that like you need to be supplementing with nutrients that are going to support egg health and sperm health. Right. Yeah. So these free radicals that you're talking about, you've got an imbalance of those, say too many, and when you don't need them, because you're saying they are necessary for mm-hmm. some things. And when you've got too many because of poor diet stress or whatever causes that, that can be undone, right? Yeah. So completely reversible by adding antioxidants. Mm -hmm. So the body naturally produces antioxidants as well. But when there's an an influx of free radicals, because we're bombarding it, we can't keep up with the antioxidants that are produced endogenously. So Mm -hmm. supplementing with antioxidants has been shown to be highly beneficial for cancers. And again, the, you know, those neurodegenerative diseases, Mm -hmm. your autoimmune diseases, all of those sort of things. Okay. So, so because everyone knows, oh, you should have antioxidants and everyone says like blueberries are full of antioxidants. I certainly barely grasp it. I don't think a lot of people do that. What is that doing? So those antioxidants are attacking the too many free radicals if you have them and bringing that into balance. Is that correct? So antioxidants are these awesome guys in our bodies. So free radicals, you know, they're just nasty. They just go and they steal other electrons from other molecules and, you Jerks. know. Yeah, just, you know, thieves. Mm-hmm. Um, just thieving stuff. Thieving stuff, just Thieving running around the body, just taking whatever they want. I'm picturing them. They're, they're purple in my mind and they've got like... You're thinking about Robina berries. Yeah, With pitchforks. Yeah. That are just running around free, radically. Okay, deep breath. So what antioxidants do, they're really generous. So they come in and they see that the free radicals missing an electron and is looking for a mate. So they say, here, look, I've got one. What colour are they? <laughs> Sorry. Green. Green. Yeah, the good guys. The good guys, okay. So they come along and they see the free radical and they donate one of their electrons. Ah, so that's how it works. Yeah. Or they can sometimes take that free radical's electron off. Kill it. And then it stabilises. But usually, you know, they also can donate an electron just to stabilise the free radical. And antioxidants are more stable themselves because they can be regenerated within the body. So even though they donate an electron and initially become unstable, they quickly restabilize. Hmm. So they just they just calm the situation down and they say, "Hey, mate, here, have one of mine. Calm down. It's all good." And as you said, free radicals are necessary, but problem in higher quantities or when they're not uh, required in the body. Yeah. But antioxidants, you can't overdo it, right? Is that correct? Oh, look, that's a bit tricky to answer because some of the research is saying if you supplement with certain antioxidants excessively, it can actually have a counterproductive health effect. Okay. But the quality of the studies and, you know, a lot of those, I don't know the details enough to be able to argue one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But if you're getting it from food 
and you're getting it from sensible dosing of supplements and you're not mega dosing on, say, just vitamin A or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so from yep. food, you're going to be totally fine. Yep. And a typical use of supplements is probably fine as well. You can't overdo it in that way. Generally, for most people, no, that's fine. Yeah. Mm. What are signs of overdoing it? Like what would you classically see in a situation where you were possibly overdoing it? On antioxidants? Yeah. I don't think I could tell you. It's more of a long-term picture. So, you know, maybe years down the track. And I think that's the thing with some of their longitudinal studies that they've done using, I think, beta carotene, for example, showed an increase in a particular cancer. I can't remember which one, but I don't know the study details to discuss it. So in practical terms, let's talk about trying to avoid cancer in dogs. Mm. I mean, that's what all this talk is kind of boiling down to. Trying to avoid cancer in dogs, what are the best foods to do that and supplements to help along the way? It's really interesting because some dogs are genetically susceptible to certain cancers. And I think it's the Scottish Highland Terrier mm-hmm. that's really susceptible to bladder cancer. Right. And I was reading a study and I think it was just one dog. So, you know, how valid it is is questionable. But they had a 92% reduction in bladder cancer in Scottish Terriers from changing the diet. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, adding more greens. So your leafy greens, you know, your colourful fruits and veg. Part of the reason that works is not just antioxidant supplementation from the foods, but it's controlling that epigenetic picture in terms of methylation. So, you know, turning genes on and off mm-hmm. through compounds in the foods that we eat. Did we talk about methylation in the last episode? No. Do you want to just quickly give people a bit of an update on what methylation is? Because I think that's important. We discussed it and you actually, uh, when we were in Fiji, we sat down to talk about methylation because I knew that you were involved in uh, methylation at one stage in your study and your work. Mm. Just give us a rundown what it is. So methylation is basically a hydrogen and carbon molecule that gets pretty much donated around the body to make processes work. I don't know how to simplify it. So you've got a methylation cycle in the body and these methyl groups that are generated from the methylation cycle go on to make our DNA, our RNA, to repair our DNA, to make neurotransmitters, to make immune compounds. Uh, They're fundamental. So when, when methylation is compromised, health is compromised and it can manifest in pretty much any disease state you could potentially have a methylation issue as part of it. Mm. And cancer is a big one. Anything genetic is, yeah. So I didn't get it. So um, <laughs> because it I didn't. It is complex. Yeah. No, no, let me. Um, break it down. No, I didn't answer the question fully. So green leafy veggies in particular um, are very high in folate mm-hmm. and, you know, other vitamins and minerals, but folate's fundamental to the optimal functioning of the methylation cycle. Right. So if you're supporting good methylation with your B vitamins, for example, B12, B9 particularly, B2, and you get a healthy methylation cycle, then you're going to get a lot of methyl groups and your immune system is going to run better, your DNA is going to be stronger. So it just offsets your detoxification is going to be more efficient. So that's the importance of diet in mm-hmm. terms of inputting those cofactors to make that process in the body run efficiently and support our health. Right. Okay. Yep. So in practical terms, what are the, the actual things people should eat? You say green veg, well, people should be feeding their dogs. Yeah. So we spoke a lot about diet composition last time in terms of how much protein and the controversy with, you know, people say 
no veg or some veg. Mm -hmm. So, you know, small quantities of vegetables I think are essential in a dog's diet, better slightly cooked or macerated, blended. But any of your colourful fruits and veg, anything that's not on the toxic list. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're familiar with the... Well, we have the toxic list here because I, I, this is something that I get asked about all the time and I've never really, you know, I should have a good list of this. So we have the list, but I'm not sure I agree with all of it as well. So this is... Well, let's have a look at that list. First thing, alcohol. Like, obviously you shouldn't give a dog alcohol, but... My dog Ernie was a legit alcoholic. He was well, drunk. We're not really life. supposed to have alcohol. Yeah, exactly, either. right? So so chocolate, obviously everybody knows that one. Mm. And what is it in chocolate exactly? There's a there's a key component. But it's the chocolatey part because I know that white chocolate's not as bad as milk chocolate and milk it's chocolate's the cacao, not as bad I as I think is actually a No, but there's a particular constituent. Yeah. And I can't chocolate. think of the name either right now. Mm. Yeah, because Ernie actually ate like a whole block of dark chocolate and what, was, what happened was, I don't know if I talked about it here, I was teaching him to get a beer from the fridge. And once I taught him to open the fridge, he was like, hey, I know how to open the fridge. I can eat it whatever I want. And he ate a whole block of dark cooking chocolate. And mm. I got home and he, I'd only been gone a short while. So I knew sort of when it had happened and the whole thing was gone. So I called the vet and said, oh, look, this is what he, this is what he's eaten. And they said, oh, how long, how much does he weigh? Read the label to us. How much of it did he eat? And they're like, oh, yeah, he's <laughs> he's going to die. Get him in here. And they had to pump his stomach and everything. Oh, my goodness. The, have you seen that image of the boxer in the lab yeah, where yeah, he's throwing up because yeah. he's eaten a block of chocolate? Yeah. And, like, it looks like he's pretty much thrown up everything from his tail to his yeah. head. So, yeah. yeah. There's actually another, an interesting video on alcoholics. I think it's alcoholics from a neurosurgeon's or a neuro neurologist point of view where the girl's taking shots as she's talking about alcohol. Mm-hmm. So she talks about what starts to happen to you as you consume alcohol, like, mm-hmm. at, you know, at certain stages of becoming intoxicated, uh, what you're actually doing to your body, your mind, uh, and how you're compromised along the way. It's very, very interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. So, she, yeah, she's a young girl. I think she's a neurologist and she's just slamming shots down. Yep. And you can see Sounds her getting... Awesome. Well, it makes learning interesting watching someone get smashed. And, yep. Yeah. So, the next one on the list here says chocolate, citrus fruits. It's a weird one. I haven't mm. heard that before. Coffee, tea, and cola. So, tea, I imagine, would be all right, right? Like, I don't want to feed them tea, but... Green tea is an antioxidant, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's it, it's controversy, right? Like Thea about exactly theobromine. I was going to uh, say that. Yeah. yeah, it's a chocolate one. Right. Mushrooms, uh, grapes and raisins. I think everyone probably knows that one. Nuts, especially certain kinds such as macadamia. It says onions. Everyone, I think, knows that onions, garlic. But again, it comes down to the dosing because mushrooms, certain mushrooms, are very therapeutic and very medicinal in dogs. Garlic in small doses is hugely you know, medicinal, yeah. some conditions I in dogs. I think shiitake mushrooms are actually good for dogs, aren't they? Oh, there's a few that are okay. Yeah. So this is the thing. So mm. this is where when people say, oh, can you give this to dogs? Can you not? And I'm like, oh, I, I, you can't see because it's podcast, but I'm lifting my shoulders like, mm. oh, I don't know. <laughs> and as I say, with the with the chocolate thing, they did that. They've got a table, I presume, at the vets because they said, yeah, yeah, he's going to die. Like bring him in. But there was a level of, no, no, he'll be okay. Mm. You know, so I think... Not saying you should feed your dog chocolates like you have a treat, but it's exactly the, it's in the dose, right? How much yeah. it's going to affect them. Well, it's whether it contains that element. Mm. So but, it's theobromine. Is that my saying it right? Yep. Yep. So xylitol definitely. Mm, absolutely, very toxic. Yeah, and xylitol is an artificial sweetener that is used in what would you say like low fat stuff has a lot of xylitol if they're trying to keep the sugar low. It's an alternate sweetener. Yeah. So like, like stevia. It's like some peanut butters has that in it. Um, yeah, they can market it as a no sugar. Yeah. Chewing gums have, do. 
Yeah. Have xylitol. Yeah, a, lot, a lot of chewing gums have xylitol in it. It's great for people for weight loss. So um, anyone looking for a sugar substitute that doesn't affect blood glucose, yeah. Or teeth enamel. It's actually great for minimizing bacteria in the mouth that cause caries. But yep. uh, excessive amounts of it causes explosive diarrhea. Mm. Anal leakage, of, I think yes. it actually says on the, the, it does. <laughs> <laughs> on the packet. Imagine that, like you're at work and you just say, oh, I've got to go home. And the boss says, oh, why? And you just say, oh, I've got I anal. drank two litres of Coke. Yeah, I've, I've just, Coke zero. I, I chewed like um, two packets of chewing gum. Now I've got excessive anal leakage. <laughs> <laughs> so we probably should get back to... Um, yeah, probably. That's my point is we've got this list of things you shouldn't feed dogs and a lot of them, you know, if you just look this stuff up on the internet, a lot of it's bullshit. Mm. And we've famously talked about here a moron who was telling people not to feed their dogs red meat. So, like, it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's difficult to know exactly what's true and what's not. In yeah, this, that, in was, that was actually embarrassing. That's, yeah, well, a, that's somebody who markets themselves as a, a high-end trainer that was making those claims that's very that and that's the person i was talking about at the beginning of the podcast my my contempt and my scorn is always directed at people like that Mm. it's very very poorly informed choices and look that's the reality there's so much information out there and it's you know it's what i do for my clients it's my job to sift through what's real what's crap you know so i i go back to the evidence and i make sure that anything that they bring to me or that they're questioning you know, that's my job to, to do for my clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, when that post was up, it said no red meat. And I think it had in brackets afterwards, I know this will cause controversy, but trust me. <laughs> and people read that and go, oh, what? He must Yeah, he must, must be know. right. Yeah. He must know. He's mm. the guy. Um, yes. But just quickly getting back to the cancer series before we move on to allergies. Mm-hmm. You know, something else that they spoke about that was fundamental was the ketogenic diet for treating cancer. So that was really interesting and they went into a lot of depth for most of the series about that so if people are interested in in that with their dogs if their dogs have cancer highly recommend that they watch the series Do you know one, one thing i found really fantastic on or fascinating not fantastic but fascinating on that in the recommendation of exploring a ketogenic diet was that how cancer is so adaptive that it will look for because it basically relies on glucose to fuel it. Yeah. So what happens is most people, cancer, most cancer, yeah. So in the in that situation, what they were saying was that. Uh, so what a lot of people think is okay. I'll, I'll cut all the carbs down and start smashing proteins, and then what happens is the cancer finds a way to convert sugars from the so it creates glutamine from all the excessive amount of protein. So then it starts feeding itself off that process. Yeah. Well, excess protein will kick you out of ketosis. So that mm. it, that's that's what I found so hard about doing ketogenic is because it converts to glutamine. Yeah, to glucose. Well, yeah. So the process is it converts. There's a process called gluconeogenesis in the body, which converts proteins into glucose. So it's taking that protein, which is glutamine, yep. is part of that protein, and changing it into a completely different structure, um, mm. a sugar, sugar molecule. So um, it's a yeah biochemical process. So it that's how it feeds itself it's a, from protein. It's amazing, isn't it? Like when you actually think about how adaptive it is. And I mean, as trainers, we know about adaptation because it's something that we have to work in our dog training experiences in behavioral applications. But then when you look at it like this horrible little mutating cell in your body is just, well, it's like everything. It, it wants to live. Mm. So it's just looking for alternate ways to keep itself surviving. So if one fuel source is choked off, it's finding another one somewhere else. Mm. Just on that, it just reminded me, one of the other functions of the mitochondria, other than producing energy for the body or the cell in the body, is one of their roles is to trigger 
cell death. So when the cell is damaged or there's just it's not functioning the way it should, the mitochondria notes that and triggers cell suicide, they call it. So, mm-hmm. you know, the cell self-destructs for the, the greater good. But if there's anything affecting the mitochondrial health, often it doesn't get that message. Right. So the cell's not triggered to die or it might get the message, but it can't generate the energy to make the cell die. Right. So again, it just comes back to the the importance and, of mitochondrial health. And is that then, that's a catalyst for cancer, right? So you get a shitty cell that then reproduces, reproduces and that. Yeah. So cancer cells are those cells that should die, but they're bypassing that mechanism that's built into the body um, and just going awry. And in terms of adaptation, cancer cells have more insulin receptors on them so they can actually take in more glucose than mm. a, a regular cell as yeah. well. There's a guy, I think one of the leading keto experts is that Dom Diagostino. I think he's a professor, he's certainly a doctor, a PhD in ketogenic diets. And I have followed a lot of his stuff. And the hard part when I tried to go proper keto is the lack of protein. It's it's very difficult to, when you're just talking about eating food, it's difficult to get in that much fat without also to accidentally taking in that much protein mm. as well. Mm. Like you find, you know, you're basically eating a lot of oils and stuff, which is... And that's the misconception from a lot of people. People think ketogenic are high protein diet, but mm. it's absolutely not when you do it properly and you need to control calories and you need to absolutely control protein. And yeah, it's a really predominantly fat. So like real true ketogenic, I'm pretty sure is like 80% fat, 18% protein and 2% carbs. Mm. And and that's, that's a really hard ratio to fit into, which so like for someone my size, like, you know, nearly cracking a hundred kilos that to get their calories, you know, just to lead a normal life that it, it, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I had a calculator on it. It was like 270 something grams of fat, which is not pleasant to eat. You know what I mean? Mm. And then it's not like you can eat so much steak to intake your fat through red meat because then you, your protein goes too high. So it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And so when you're feeding it to a dog, it's not, you can't just go, okay, well, mm. here's no carbs. So therefore you're ketogenic. Yeah, that's um, it. It's you, not as simple as that. You come inside and say, what's for dinner? 270 grams of fat. Yeah. And, well, <laughs> yeah. mate, it's hard. It, yeah. it was really unpleasant for me trying to do it properly. And there's loads of people that do it. I'm not trying to get up on my cross and talk about how hard the ketogenic diet is, but I personally don't stay stable in ketosis easily. The last six months of my life have been entertained by watching you go through your diet, <laughs> dietary experiences. <laughs> yeah. Well, the hard part for me is that my body's gone to shit, so i you know, I used to be extremely active, extremely fit, strong and what, blah, blah, blah. But now I can't train anywhere near the way I would like to or need to, to facilitate eating the way I would also like to. So yeah, I've got a hard life. It's hard. It, it <laughs> it's a, a, but it's entertaining. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I like to, you know, I, I'm not healthy at the moment. I'm in terrible shape at the moment, but I have been at times and I like to experiment with it. I know how good it can feel. And it, it certainly, this applies to dogs as well. Like I know how good it can feel to be healthy yep. and I'm constantly trying to play with that and, and and achieve that through a lifestyle I can continually lead. It's good. And what's sad is that most people don't realize how good their bodies can feel. Yeah. You know, most people go through day to day feeling, you know, this drudgery and this this unwellness, you know, really vague. But... Which they think is normal life. They've Which, just become yeah. a, adapt to it. Yeah. And mm. the, the best diet, and this is what I'm always chasing, as I tell you about, the best thing I ever did was that carb backloading, but that requires... You, you, you eat no breakfast, no carbs at lunch, heavy weight session in the afternoon, go crazy with carbs at night, eat whatever you want. And that was the, the best I've ever felt and fittest I've ever was. But I can't do the training volume anymore. I just can't lift enough weights to justify that. Like my body just isn't up to it. Yep. So I'm constantly trying to find like, okay, what can I do? 
I haven't found it yet. But at least you're looking. And I mean, that's the, I guess that's the the big part of, you'll never find answers unless you go looking for yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. And mm. it's fun to play with. It, it's, mm. it's interesting to see, okay, if I eat this, how does it affect it? And the same with your dogs. You, mm. you, okay, how do I find performance in this? So, mm. well, and it's a little bit of a more tricky puzzle with dogs because they can't give you direct feedback. You yeah. have to observe That's it. the difficult part, yeah. for sure. So we've, we talked about ket- ketosis before, like the recommendation of a ketosis diet. Talk about ketoacidosis. There's quite a distinct difference between nutritional, like a nutritional ketogenic diet and diabetic ketoacidosis. So diabetic ketoacidosis is a life-threatening condition that should be, needs to be avoided at all costs. But nutritional ketosis is, you know, gives the health benefits that we've been talking about. So Mm -hmm. most doctors, when their patients go in and say, I want to, you know, I've been on a ketogenic diet, they only think diabetic ketoacidosis because that's what they know that's what they're trained to understand but it's completely different Mm. process happening in the body and very like poles apart Mm. all right so we're moving on to inflammation allergies allergies sorry but inflammation is a big part of allergies okay so you're just ahead of the game good tight tight it all in cool 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 okay and so that's the show then Um, so this is what we, we got. You got a lot of questions about after the first time you're on, people wanting to know specifics about allergies in their dogs. Yeah, we had a few inquiries come through, um, how to deal with allergies and different symptoms that present with allergies. So yeah, I thought it'd be good if we have a chat about that today. Mm-hmm. So what do you got? <laughs> the first thing I want to just mention is that there's actually, people use allergies as a quite generic term, but there's a quite... A, there's a difference between food allergies, like a true allergy and a food intolerance. So true allergies are actually quite rare. And if someone has a true allergy, they'll absolutely know about it. It's that immediate sort of reaction within, you know, within a two-hour time period, you might get difficulty breathing, swelling, you know, rashes, things like that. Anaphylactic shock is at the extreme end of a true allergy in terms of reaction. But that's different. So that's a quite a different process in the body to a food intolerance. So food intolerances, they're more insipid. So they're very sort of chronic, low grade. In people, they may manifest as headaches, migraines, fatigue, gut issues, bowel issues, skin issues, just, you know, general blahness. And they can take months and years to come about. And it's really hard to, so as with a true allergy, it's quite easy to join the dots with what you ate as to when you reacted with a food intolerance, you may eat something and three or four days later feel off or have, you know, a day headaches and go, oh, I wonder what that's about. Maybe I haven't drunk enough water or what did I eat for lunch or what did I eat the night before? When in reality, it could be something you ate days ago. Mm. So it's really hard to to make that connection with a food intolerance situation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, today we'll just talk more broadly about allergies, but what we talk about applies to food intolerances as well. Yeah. So what are some of the main triggers or allergies or intolerances? Gut health is key. It comes back to the integrity of our gastrointestinal tract. So, you know, when we eat foods, they're supposed to be broken down into such small molecules that when they're absorbed, you know, into the bloodstream, their fundamental unit of amino acids, for example, or, or glucose, But when we're stressed or, you know, we're eating foods that are pro-inflammatory or there's chemicals or toxins or additives or preservatives, anything that aggravates the gut and compromises the integrity of the gut lining lets through bigger molecules Mm -hmm. into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there. And so the body thinks, well, here's a 
foreign invader shouldn't be this, and then sets up an immune reaction to that particle the same way they would to a bacteria or a virus or a, you know, a fungi or something like that. So it's something in the bloodstream that shouldn't be there via a compromised gut. Right. So the and gut basically acts like a net where it stops things from getting through and when compromised that it starts opening up and there's massive holes there where it can easily start penetrating the walls of it and getting in. Yeah, well, our gut... Absorption, basically. Our gut barrier is our first line of defence, and it is. It's a permeable barrier that's supposed to let water and nutrients in and keep all the bad stuff Mm. out. So since our last episode where we had you on, you and Bertie Oshidi have combined forces and created a little get-together called... The Vegas Connection. The Vegas Connection. So the Vegas Connection is, or the Vegas Nerve is... So the vagus nerve is the main nerve that connects the brain to most of the major organs in the body, including the gut. So it's a bi-directional effect. So anything, so stress, you know, affects the gut and things in the gut can affect our mood. Yep. One of the things that I found out about the vagus connection with you guys is that the gut is often referred to as the body's second brain. Absolutely. You know, and science is catching up now that what affects our gut affects every other aspect of our health and our body and What else is interesting is that, you know, 70% of the immune system is located around the gut. So there's some tissue called the gut-associated lymphoid tissue, and it's estimated to be up to 300 metres squared of tissue that goes right through the gastrointestinal tract, including the intestines. And that's our immune system sitting just behind that really thin single layer of cells that's our gut lining. So anything that comes through that shouldn't be there, the body mounts you know, a rapid immune response to deal with it. Okay. So I'm just sort of thinking back to something you said. So when people say their dog can't eat a particular thing, like a particular protein, say kangaroo, they can't feed it, it gives a dog diarrhea or whatever, or the dog doesn't perform so well on it, that would more than likely be a, not a allergy, but a sort of a, what's the other word? I'm intolerance. Trying, an intolerance. Or a sensitivity. Yeah. And most of the time, right? Like if it's a, a true allergy, the outcome would be more extreme? Look, it can still vary. There's different degrees of the way symptoms show up. But for the most part, it would likely be an intolerance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like in my head, and correct me if I'm wrong, when I think allergy, I think first rash, then anaphylaxis. And then mm. when I think intolerance, I think just feeling a bit shitty, right? Is that on the right path? That's a, it's a really good simple way to generalize it so yeah it's not 100 percent, but it's quite accurate yeah Yeah. so and i kind of think it like in i think of it in human terms where i've got a friend who's a legit celiac like if he eats gluten like he's he's cooked um but then i know plenty of people that are intolerant and usually that's actually from like not eating any gluten you know what i mean so they they were pretty normal to gluten and then I know a couple of people who've totally cut it from their diet and then when they accidentally ingest it they're in bad shape so that's not an allergy that's just they've developed an intolerance or they've they've lost the gut bacteria that they, is necessary to process that gluten. Gut bacteria definitely play a role in again the integrity of the gut lining and the immune response of the body to things that we eat but gluten is a bit special And I really do believe that there's nothing good Mm -hmm. about gluten. I mean, I eat gluten. I try and avoid it the best I can. The problem with gluten is it's delicious. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's the... It just seems that everything that's not good for you or doesn't agree with your body long-term is delicious. Yeah. But the problem with gluten, and they've shown this, is that it triggers a protein to be released in the gut called zonulin. And zonulin actually 
triggers increased permeability of the gut lining. So we've got all these tight junctions. So the cells in our gut should be tightly packed together, but zonulin creates gaps between them. Mm -hmm. So that just allows more food particles and foreign material into the bloodstream. And you're going to get that, you know, low grade chronic inflammatory response that for months and years might be okay. But it's just like, how can I, if someone was to sit next to you and just tap you on the shoulder with their finger, Mm -hmm. just gently, you might be like, okay, what are you doing? But it's not bothering you. It's a bit annoying, but you can tolerate it. And they just keep tapping you in that same spot on the shoulder at the same level. So it's not hard. After a couple of months, the skin's really red. It's starting to break through the surface. So you're starting to get a bit more irritated and and they keep doing it. And you can imagine that spot eventually is going to get so hypersensitive, Mm -hmm. even though the touch is the same, you're going to get to a threshold where you probably turn around and punch the person in the face. And it's this overreaction, even though the degree hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens with food molecules that come into the bloodstream. It's nothing noticeable. It, it might just be that you you feel a bit tired or a bit off or you're a bit headachy or you're not sleeping as well or, you know, you're a bit, your gut's not working the way it should. But after years and years of these same proteins, so this is where people who feed the same diet day in, day out, you know, kibble particularly, that same protein's getting through that leaky gut mm-hmm. into the bloodstream and it's just irritating the buggery out of the immune system and eventually you just get this hypersensitivity reaction and then, you you know, it just blows out into more overt symptoms. So you might get the diarrhea, you might get the skin conditions, you might get autoimmune conditions, things like that in your dog. So that would be, this is sort of where I'm going with it, in that if someone's been feeding their dog kibble all, all along its whole life, they've then listened to you and said, okay, I'm going to go raw. And then they get a terrible result initially. Might be because their dog is now intolerant of basically anything that isn't that kibble. Would that be a fair assumption? Because say I know like my dog, for example, ate someone else's kibble the other day and it flattened him out. He wasn't as well as he is or eating his normal food. Mm. And it's good food that he ate. It's not like it was shitty food. So it made me think, well, it was just something different about that that he's probably intolerant to because he doesn't get. Is that likely? Uh, look, it's more just, I mean, with any everyone knows with any dietary changes, it needs to be done gradually because mm-hmm. I don't think that's an intolerant situation. I think that's just the body adjusting and the, the microbiome adjusting okay. more so. So if someone was going from kibble to raw, I'd still say do it gradually. Yeah. But they can still have problems. So people will say, well, it can't be chicken causing my dog's allergy symptoms because he's been eating chicken for the last six years. Mm-hmm. But that's why it's probably chicken that's causing the allergy symptoms. So it's when you get the same protein, I mean, it usually is a protein um, hitting the the immune system constantly, that's where you tend to get the reactions from. Mm-hmm. So that's where diversity in diet and diversity in proteins plays an important role so that you rotate your proteins and the foods that you're giving your dog. So your immune system just handles everything. So it gets a little bit of everything. It doesn't get overreactive to anything in particular because, you know, once it starts to get a bit over-responsive, you've, you've switched to a different protein and it calms down again. And so it's about rotating diets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you identify that your dog is either intolerant or allergic to a particular food, what, what options do you have from there? Okay, so there's a few things that you can do. The traditional gold standard for any food allergy or intolerance is a food elimination mm-hmm. diet. I'll, I might come back to that and we can talk in more depth about how you might go about that. There's also commercial hydrolyzed protein diets. Mm-hmm. So, And they're the ones that the vets will stock and probably sell. If what is hydrolyzed? 
So if it's a hydrolyzed protein diet, what it does, the food should only contain a single protein and we'll say chicken, for example. Right. And it's been processed in such a way and that chicken protein has been broken down to such an extent that the immune system doesn't recognize it as a chicken protein anymore. Right. So technically you can still feed your dog, even if your dog's allergic to chicken, on a hydrolyzed protein diet, it shouldn't trigger a reaction because the immune system's not recognizing it as chicken Mm. protein. Okay. It might be an okay short-term solution, but a lot of those hydrolyzed protein diet commercial foods have a lot of carbohydrates and grains. Yeah. And soy is part of them, which just complicates matters. And it's still not getting to the underlying cause. Like it's not healing the gut. It's Mm -hmm. not... Yeah, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done than just giving another kibble food. Sure. Yeah, Yeah, you've got food elimination diets. You've got the hydrolyzed protein diets. You can do blood testing. You can do skin prick testing. The blood test and the skin prick testing is more for a true allergy. So it's, it's measuring a certain protein in the body called immunoglobulin A. Whereas if you do a saliva test, it's more looking at different immunoglobulins in the body, which IgG, IgA, IgM. Did I say IgA before? Should have been IgE. So true allergy is IgE. Okay. And intolerance, you're measuring IgG for the most part. It depends what you're looking for in your dog. So there's now a company in the US called Nutriscan, which is promoting saliva testing for food intolerances in dogs. And I use a similar process through functional pathology labs here for my clients for food intolerance testing. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're now doing that for dogs as well. So you've got a few options, but again, they can be expensive the pathology testing and elimination diets is something everyone can do at home themselves. Yeah, is, is it? that's the question, right? Is it worth going through all that when the treatment is probably pretty similar along the way, right? Like you cut it all out and slowly reintroduce. That's the, the gist? Yeah, and with some of the pathology testing, you know, whether you're getting some false positives and negatives mm. comes into play as well. Some people just want answers, like they don't want to go through the process of because it's months and it's yeah. months and months of strict dietary control. Some people don't want to do that um, and they're like, well, if it's a shortcut to the answers, then let's do the pathology testing. But for greater accuracy, I think the food elimination diet, whether it's people or dogs, is the way to go. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Like what do you do? Okay, so probably the trickiest part with an elimination diet is trying to find what's called a novel protein. So a protein source that your dog ideally has never had before. Mm-hmm or has had very little exposure before. So some of the main chicken and beef are two of the main allergenic proteins yep. in a dog's diet. So you might need to get creative and, you know. Duck. duck. <laughs> no, a friend of mine did exactly that. He had a, not for his dog, but for himself mm. and had to find exactly that, find a novel protein. He's like, well, I eat everything. So he went with duck because he rarely, if ever, eats duck. Yeah, you know, duck, venison. Once upon a time it was could have been kangaroo once upon a time it could have been lamb but they're becoming more prevalent in dogs mm. you know particularly raw dog diets now so it's about finding a protein that your dog hasn't eaten or been exposed to very often and you pick one protein and you pick one carbohydrate source and whether it's 50 50 or two-thirds one-third you know the, the literature varies on different programs but for the sake of today we'll just say so you do 50 percent, we'll say duck and you might do 50 percent sweet potato mm-hmm. You'll feed that for a couple of weeks and if nothing improves, like if the dog's still scratching or, you know, whatever the issue is with the dog, nothing changes, then you need to change the protein and the carbohydrate source. Mm -hmm. So you might go from duck to, we'll say venison and broccoli and you do that for another two weeks. 
if nothing improves, you, ha- you have to just keep trying to find a protein and carb that your dog doesn't react to. Yeah. If you find a combination and your dog, the symptoms start to subside after a couple of weeks, you might keep that protein, but add in another vegetable. So you might do, to say turkey was okay, sweet potato was okay. So you might do 50% turkey, maybe 20% sweet potato and 30% broccoli or mm-hmm. something like that. So you add another vegetable. And then if the dog continues to improve, you might add a third carbohydrate source. So you've still got that 50% turkey and you might have 10% sweet potato, 10% broccoli, 10% zucchini, mm-hmm. for example. And it's just all about monitoring your dog. But you have to be so strict because the dog can't have any treats. It can't lick your other dog's bowls. Yeah. Um, it can't eat anything off the ground because that can just throw the whole thing out. And it's just that trial and error, monitoring your dog. And if after a protein and a few veg, the dog's still improving, then you might try a new protein with those same veg mm-hmm. and, again, monitor for... Well, that's the trap, right? In my head, you think, oh, I found it. Like he's performing well on venison and broccoli. That's probably all he needs. But then years later, you've now given him a... A new problem. Yeah. Yeah. So you do need to to try and reintroduce other proteins. So even though we might have discovered that turkey is fine, yeah, your dog can't stay on turkey forever because it'll eventually become intolerant to Mm -hmm. turkey. But then we need to still find out all the other foods that it is reacting to. So that's part of the key. So you bring back in chicken, your dog reacts. Well, you know, chicken's no good. But you might find other protein sources that the dog tolerates. Mm -hmm. And then if you get three or four, it's about rotating those proteins every few months. So how would we rule out in the situation that we've been feeding a meat for a period of time and we find that the dog seems to have an intolerance to it? Mm Mm-hmm. How will we find out it's the actual protein itself or the preservatives that it's been preserved with? Well, that's the thing. You've got to consider the quality of the food that you're feeding. So ideally, it's a very, it's just a pure protein source. So there is no preservatives or additives in an ideal elimination diet situation. So I guess the only way to eliminate that would be to go organic as possible. Yeah. And experiment with that to trial it on the dog to say, okay, well, this cube of kangaroo could be heavily preserved where this is, we know this is from a, a source where it's been kosher butchered or whatever they call it, and uh, there is no preservatives being used in it at all. Feed that to the dog. Is that where we're heading with this? Is this- yeah, so those pathology testing sounding cheaper and cheaper all the time. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. that's where it gets right. Like yeah. I think no matter how much that costs, if you can get that immediate answer mm. and know exactly what to cut out, it's a lot easier. Yeah, at least it gives you a, a better place to start from to give symptom relief to your dog too. I mean, you know, if your dog's suffering to that extent, you want to sort of ease things off. But why you, you know, another critical part of, you know, treating a dog, when you do the elimination diet to see what's triggering the immune response, but you still need to heal the gut. So Mm -hmm. you still need to go back to basics and, you know, slippery elm is a lovely, you know, demulcent to help heal the gut lining. Zinc's critical for gut integrity. Things that you can give to immediately like dampen that histamine response that's part of the allergic reaction is vitamin C is one of nature's, you know, awesome antihistamines. Quercetin, again, antihistamine. What's quercetin? It's an antioxidant. It's a bioflavonoid. I have so many questions. What's a bioflavonoid? (laughs) (laughs) It's a bioflavonoid? No. So what would quercetin be? Is that an actual thing? Is that a, a, a vegetable or what is it in No, stuff? it's a molecule that's in certain foods. What's one of those foods? 
Oh, I've gone blank on what would contain quercetin, but it's in a lot of allergy formulas right, okay. as a supplement. So if you've got a dog with a cute or chronic, you know, allergic picture going on, I would supplement to get a, a therapeutic dose and to get on top of it mm-hmm. more quickly. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, vitamin C, um, quercetin, all your other antioxidants, probiotics to rebalance the gut and the immune system. Fish oils, again, anti-inflammatory to dampen that overreactive immune response. Yeah, there's quite a few things you can do supplemental that can help support the dog in healing so it tolerates more proteins that you mm-hmm. might introduce, you know, over time. Yeah, that might be at the lower end of its intolerance. Mm. Yeah, and an elimination diet too, it's all about giving the immune system a break and helping it to reset and come back down and just function more in line with the way it it should and not to be so overreactive right. to everything that's coming through. So in line with that, would you think that maybe if you found out your dog was allergic to beef and then he was off beef for a long time and immune system recovered, you might be able to slowly reintroduce beef again later? Yeah, well, it depends. A true allergy, it's a lot trickier mm-hmm. to reintroduce the allergenic food. If it's an intolerance, yeah, they wax and wane. So people or dogs with intolerances, if you get the immune system under control and you heal the gut and control, you know, the stress and everything else that might be impacting, yeah, you can eat that food again. So it might be three months, six months, a year, depending on the degree of damage that's been done to the body and the gastrointestinal tract. But intolerances, yeah, come and go. So depending on someone's current life situation, Mm -hmm. something they've been eating forever that's caused no problems, suddenly they've got all this acute stress at work um, and they're having a bit, you know, a few too many wines at night and compromised gut integrity. So now that food is triggering a reaction, but we fix all those external factors and eventually the idea is that they can eat that food again. Mm. So it's not a forever situation, but you've got to, you've got to treat the gut. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's what it comes down to, right? If you, if you could just one key takeaway from this whole thing, talking about cancer, allergies, intolerances, everything yep. is keep the gut healthy and everything else will follow. Absolutely. Yeah. Whether it's dogs or people, you've got to treat the gut because that's what's triggering that cascade of poor health. You mm-hmm. know, everything that was spoken about for the most part begins in, in the gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a lot to take in. I hope that people can get a fair bit to take away from that and impart to their dogs or imply on their dogs. I think that the, the thing that I'm thinking about as we go through this is that you, the dogs, as we discussed, uh, before dogs are our prisoners they get what we give them and they're it's up to you to feed your dog well i mean if you make the life choice to smash burgers and be fat and unhealthy that's on you but if you then just if that's all you're offering your dog and you're putting him into a state where you compromise his immunity or you're making him feel unwell he has no other option he might Mm. in his mind think that he's an athlete and he's just getting fed mcdonald's so it is up to people to feed their dog as best as they can afford, as well as they can, is really what it comes down to, right? The whole thing. And do the best by your dog because you're all he has. He can't go out and and identify better food for himself. And whatever maybe you... for yourself as well. Yeah. I mean, people are so overwhelmed with just dog health, pet health these days that they're fundamentally forgetting one of the most important things themselves. Because if you can't look after yourself, then you can't look after your pet, uh, especially if you start to have ailing health at the same time. But, you know, it affects your mood, so it affects your tolerance and your patience towards your dog. Exactly. Um, But something we didn't even cover and we won't have time today is allergies and intolerances in dogs. We've spoken about the dietary aspects, but it could you could do a three-month elimination diet and nothing change. Mm. In that case, it's 
there's a good chance it's environmental. Yeah. We don't think about as much, and we spoke briefly about the water, but the carpets, the furniture, all the chemicals that our dogs are exposed to in susceptible dogs, that's enough to trigger a lot of skin issues, immune issues. Women are spraying hairspray and beauty products and perfumes around and their dogs are around them. Mm -hmm. That impacts them. So lawn herbicide, everything. We haven't even touched on that whole side. If it's not food, it could very well be something sort Mm. of external like Mm. that. Another rabbit's warren that we could go down. Yeah, so it's you know it's all about time and it's a process, but, but it's main, worth it. Well, that's the thing because vets will naturally treat you know their go tos are like corticosteroids for allergies because it's it's an overreaction of the immune system. So corticosteroids will dampen that down. Mm-hmm. But you know you dampen the immune system for long enough and you set up the body for other infections. You know, yep. dogs might get yeast infections, which gives skin issues in its own right or they're more susceptible to to anything else that's growing around, or they give antibiotics and then that destroys the gut microbiome, which sets up dysbiosis and inflammation and immune problems. So it's really worth... Getting to the bottom of and figuring it out. Yeah, doing the dietary changes, doing the environmental changes, supplementing your dog with those key nutrients. And there's a whole, you know, there's pages and pages of nutrients and herbs that can be beneficial for dogs. We just haven't had time today to really get into the nitty gritty Mm -hmm of all of those aspects but but if people are interested you know make comments on the facebook page if there's other aspects of this conversation that you'd like more details on people can contact me so how can they do that again tell us again so my business is natural health and nutrition Mm -hmm. i'm on facebook i've got a website if you still can't find me which i hope you can you can always go through glenn and say hey give me narelle's contact details um, so natural Narelle's, health Narelle's, and nutrition. Narelle's actually got quite a few people on the paradigm who are her clients. Yeah. So they so she have. Should. Yeah, she should. She's not just, as I said in the last session, just not just because she's my wife. She's actually pretty brilliant at her job. Yeah. She throws heart and soul into what she does and she has high integrity in trying to help people trying to get back to parity or even trying to improve their health overall. Yeah. So if you are looking at, at something along those lines, then give her a call, contact her. As I said, she's got a Facebook page, website, go for it. And this topic, like gut health, I'm passionate about gut health and liver health and we didn't even touch on liver health. You know, that's a whole other area of dogs and people and allergies and cancer and all of these things. So, you know, I'd love to write a book one day on gut and liver health um, because it's fundamental to our overall health and well-being and longevity. So, yeah, please contact me if it's something that you want to know more about. Um, I'm always happy to talk about it. It's just a shame we don't have time today. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, get online, rate us, share, subscribe. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can do that via our Facebook page, the Canine Paradigm. Narelle, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. (laughs) 